Grab your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of John. You're going to hear that for a while, so just kind of get accustomed to that as we start today in our series, Simply Tell That You May Believe the Gospel of John. And so we start, well, we start in John chapter 1. It's a powerful text in a few moments, and verses 1 through 18, and we're going to get together. But what I want to share with you real quick before I start is this, that in your, uh, on your top of your notes is a QR code, and it's simply beside it, it says, what, want to go deeper? It's a question. And so every week, what you're going to have online, you can go to our website or you can go to the QR code, is simply what we call dive in. And, and what dive in means is to take this a step further. And so today, when you go to that, it is currently live now, that you will find a recap of our teaching this morning. You're going to find some additional scriptures for you to be home and to actually read and meditate over. And also, there's about three, I think, this week or more conversation starters, some questions for you to have with yourself, with your spouse, with your family, with maybe a relationship that you're in. It's a great time to discuss what we're going to be talking about this morning from John chapter 1, starting with verse 1. So I wanted to kind of get that uh, out to you also today and to realize that uh, as we progress through John, there are going to be some video times that we share with you also of digging deeper And we want this to be just a catalyst, Sunday morning to be the start of your study through the book of John. So today, John chapter 1, starting with verse 1. So let me kind of set this up for you for a moment as we make our way through this. That John, as we know historically, is perhaps one of the closest disciples that we find to Jesus. And I have to give a little caveat there, because sometimes when we say that, we actually make it sound as if Jesus somehow had favorites in that grouping of the disciples. But it's not that at all. I think historically we find that John is tremendously relational. He's very relational. And there is this very different relationship that he has with Jesus than the others do. And, and, I, and I love it because that crew, that motley crew of disciples that follow Christ and, and, and hang with him for those three years of his earthly ministry, man, they reflect all of our personalities and characters. They really do. You know, some of us are Johns and some of us are Peters, right? And, and, and so it reflects all of us. It's a great way for you and I connect to those that followed him closely. But John is very relational, and I know that because even at the crucifixion, at the very foot of the cross, when Jesus looks down, he says, John, behold your mother, that he gives John that charge of his very mother, uh, Mary. And so it's a powerful thought to think that Jesus sees that relational ability that's in the life of John. So what happens in this book is this, that it gives us a very powerful insight into the life of Christ from that of someone that has a very close relationship with him. It's not like Luke, and Luke is a powerful writer, but Luke is also a doctor who he writes, and a historian, so he writes from a very academic standpoint about the lives of Christ in the Gospel of Luke, but John is written from his very relational standpoint. And so John gives us what we would call an insight into the life of Christ, and that insight into the life of Christ brings us to a greater understanding of the Father. And that understanding for you and I today leads to fullness of life. And when we say fullness of life, man, we take that in so many directions. You know, you say, oh, Mark, this is a series about prosperity then. Isn't that what this is about? Listen, if you know me, that's not going to happen, right? That, that's just not going to happen here as far as prosperity as we hear it misused so much in Christendom today. That's not it at all. But this is how about how you and I navigate through the good and the bad of our life. It's how you and I navigate through those tough times and those times of celebration of our life in the shadow of the understanding that we have of God. And that's very important because here is the thing. Jesus is our lens to the Father. You need to realize that, that Jesus is our lens to the Father. 
And if we look at, if we look at the book of John in that, that manner, if we approach the gospel of John in the manner that Jesus is a lens to the Father, then what we're going to take away after whatever the 20 weeks that we spend in the book of John together is that we're going to take away a greater understanding of the Father. And what that does for you and I is this. It gives us a more clear lens to see life through. So when life doesn't go bad, or when life does go bad sometimes, then what happens is this, that we're not running around saying, oh, God hates me, and God doesn't love me, and God has abandoned me. No, I understand the character and nature of God because I see it through His Son, Jesus, as it's revealed to you and I through the Gospel of John. I believe, as we walk away from this together, that we're going to have a greater understanding of who God is through the life of of Jesus. Now, how do, how do I kind of illustrate that to start this whole series off with you? So I, I gave it a lot of thought, and I read an article, and, and it's based on a book written by Bill Johnson. Uh, he's the pastor of Bethel Church, and he makes a statement, and this statement hit me so powerfully when I read this article. He said that Jesus is perfect theology. He said Jesus is perfect theology. And I thought, you know, so what, what does that mean that Jesus is perfect theology? And how does that apply to the book of John for you and I today? So let me illustrate it like this. So here is God. Now, I, I have to use somebody this morning, and they have no idea I'm going to use them. So Travis, come here, I want to use you for a minute, brother. Yeah, and you're smiling because you knew that was going to happen, right? You just, you just knew it, all right? So Travis, today is your opportunity to be God, okay? So here's the throne, brother. yes. And I want to tell you, you're all in trouble. No, sit down. It's good. And Morgan Freeman was not available, so you're the next, okay? And you have the beard and that kind of thing, right? Uh, and so he, here is God. And this is, this is what happens. This is what happens, that God has wrapped his entire statement of humanity. Everything that he wants to disclose to you and I about himself, he wraps that in the life of Jesus. So I need a Jesus. So Matthew, come here, Matthew. You're going to be Jesus, man. Yeah. Come here, brother. Hurry up, man. Jeez, you're taking all day. Come on. Come on. We're burning daylight, bud. They got me on a timer up there. See that? Okay? Okay. So he wants him to set his feet. Oh, my gosh. Stand right there, brother. Okay, there you go. That's perfect. I like that. So we have God and Jesus. And, and so what God does is he discloses everything that he wants you and I to know about him. He discloses that through his son, Jesus. And it's such a powerful thought that what he does, he has delivered Jesus to earth, wraps him in flesh, so that, here's the thought, so that you and I would see him. Understand that. He wraps Jesus in flesh so that you and I will see him. Everything that God wants to say to us, everything that God wants us to know about him, it's found through his son, Jesus. That's why, if, if we look at the, the term theology, it's the study of God. And so that's why I love this term that Jesus is perfect theology. Why? Because Jesus is the complete and accurate disclosure of who the Father is. And you say, well, that's wonderful, and that's all academic kind of stuff, Mark, and that's great. But here is kind of the rub for you and I. Here is kind of the struggle, that so many times we attempt to look at God around Jesus. It's what we do. Yes, because we ask questions about like this, you know, we post questions like, well, if God were a loving God, then, I don't know if you've ever made that statement, maybe you've had the thought, but what that is, is that's looking around Jesus, trying to figure out God without looking through Jesus as the lens to the Father. We do. We wonder sometimes, has God left me? Has God abandoned me? Things are going really terrible in my life, and life sucks right now. And so in doing that, I'm looking around at God, trying to look past Jesus to see, to see God. 
And what I realized is that anytime I try to bypass Jesus to understand who the Father is, then my spiritual vision is blurry. I have a very distorted understanding of who God is unless I look through His Son, Jesus. Because simply this, Jesus is the full disclosure of who the Father is and what God wants us to know about Him. And we all do this. We're human. We all take those moments in life where we doubt God, we doubt God's love, we doubt God's concern, we doubt God's heart for us, and so we try to do this, and we try to look around at Travis, who is God. Don't take this, you know, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, right, exactly, yeah, that's right. Nikki, Nikki will level you out, okay, understand that when you get home, understand that, so you are not God. That, that we try to look around, and we try to look at God our own way, and what you and I walk away with, and we walk through life many times with this distorted understanding of who God is, because we're not looking, him, looking at Him through the lens of Christ. That's the gospel of John. That's it. That's it. Can you give Jesus and God a hand this morning? Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. You guys play the part very well. Absolutely. Yes. So, so this is our journey. This is where we start. This is, this is where you and I begin this journey together through the gospel of John. So there are four big ideas I want to share with you this morning. And I'm so excited about this. I really am. I'm so pumped about this. The first idea that we're going to find throughout our text, four big ideas. The first is this, that at the incarnation, the very life of God is infused into all the creative order. We need to realize that what this means for Christ to come in flesh. The second is this, that in order to experience life, the fullness of life. I'm not talking about just, just living and sucking air, okay? That's not what I'm... And I realize there are times when we sort of... We go through those moments in our lives. But in order to experience life, the fullness of life, we must know God. And the path to knowing God is through Jesus. It is. The third is this, that our experience to the gospel rests in God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I use the word responsibility, not human effort. And there is a difference. Understand that. And the fourth is this, that God remains true to his character and nature by providing. And John ends today with this by providing grace upon grace, that God is reliable and God is real. And so as we get ready to read John chapter 1, verse 1, can I tell you, these verses, especially the verse five, first five of them, what we find is we find, we find the whole creating, creation story. What we find is in verses 1 and 2, we find eternity, that God lives and exists before time. And in, and in verse 3, we find that a story of creation. And verse 4, we find incarnation. 5, we find the conflict of life. It's powerful how John writes these words to you and I as God moves on his heart. So John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. I underline that statement. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. I underline that statement because those are two important concepts in theology that you and I have to understand. That he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So here's the thought. We have God accommodating us. 
And when we put the word God and accommodation together, especially those that maybe have been in church for a while, and I realize we have a mixed audience of some of you that are here just checking it out for the first time, and some of you have been here a long time, some of you have been in church like 30-some years, and you think, oh, Mark, wait a minute, you can't use God and accommodation in the same sentence because you're talking about somewhat about compromise. Can I tell you, that's not what accommodation means. That's not what this means. It's the incarnation. But before we can go there, I think we have a basic understanding of one, of simply who John is referring to in this text and why John uses the language he does. Because where John starts out is this. He starts out before the book of Genesis. That's where he begins. And a purpose in doing that is to establish in my heart and your mind and my mind that of a value of God that I think sometimes we struggle to wrap our mind around. It's a reference to God's vastness. It's a reference to God's greatness. It, that in that God exists outside of the time and space continuum. That God lives in eternity. That God does not wear an Apple watch. That God does not live in the confines of time as you and I know it. And with God, because of that, with God, there are no limits to God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That God, there's no limits to God. That God doesn't sleep and God doesn't slumber, the scripture says. That there are no time limits with God. There's nothing impossible to him. There's nothing that he cannot do. There's no place that God is not in our lives. So what this says to me is this, that God is present in my past God is present in my present, and God is present in my future simultaneously. And that says that God has a plan for my life, and God walks through this life with me every moment and every second. It's the vastness of the God that we serve. But not only is he talking about the vastness and the greatness of God before before Genesis, he, lived, he exists in all eternity. But he's talking about this relationship between the Father and the Son. Why does, God, why does John take a moment in our life to establish this relationship between the Father and the Son? Because he wants you to know a couple of things. One is this, that Jesus, the Son, is not a creation of the Father. Understand that. That he is not a creation. He is not an angel. He's not a creation of heaven. He's not a creation of the Father. He has always coexisted with the Father forever. And he establishes this relationship uh, central to the gospel and to our understanding this morning. That we have to know this in order to really grasp everything that Jesus says and does throughout the book of John. Because it denotes this personal distinctive Yet they are one, yet you have the Father and Son, and they living in relationship together throughout all eternity. That's why he uses these terms. And I put them in your notes for you, straight out of the book of John. The word was with God. It's not just geography. It's not that, but it talks about a relationship between a father and a son. It sets us up for some really powerful understanding of redemption. It does. And then he says the word was with God. That there is this identity of being between them. That Jesus is not just some creation of the Father created to cover our mistakes. Created to make things right that you and I messed up. To make a promise right. But they have coexisted eternally together as Father and Son. So what this says is this. This is the real deal. So when I read Genesis chapter 3 after the sin in the garden of Adam and Eve. And God comes down and he says this to Adam. Hey man you messed up. That is absolutely true. And there are going to be some 
repercussions for your sin. But here is what's going to happen. There's going to be a point in history that I am going to send someone in flesh to fix this problem, that I am not going to allow you to simply exist forever and in this state, but I'm going to fix this. And what he's simply saying is this, that I'm going to send my son. It's not that I'm going to create some angel to come to, to earth. It's not that I'm going to create some heavenly being that's going to come down to fix all of this. But because I am a father who loves you with everything that is within me, even though my heart is breaking because of your rebellion, I'm going to give the the greatest thing that I could ever give, and that is my son. And when I look at that, I understand that redemption is real. Redemption is real. I think about, you know, my, I have three boys. I have three sons. And as much as I love all of you in this room, I have to make a statement of total honesty with you, and that is that I would not give up any of my three sons for any of you in this room. I love you. I, I sincerely do. But I would not. But what John does, he establishes this relationship and the reality of this relationship because he wants you and I to understand redemption that God sent his very own son to fix the brokenness of our lives. So I, I, I got curious about this whole incarnation thing because, man, it just you know, blows your mind when you begin to think about this, that God comes wrapped in flesh, that God reveals himself. He, he discloses himself through his son. And so I began to read all these things about this. And, and I read some writings of Augustine. He's this fourth century philosopher and theologian. You think, Mark, couldn't you find something a little more relevant and timely to read? No, it, it's really powerful because what Augustine does, he describes the incarnation as God's accommodation to human limitations. God's accommodation to human limitations. That since human beings can't adjust to God, here's what the incarnation is, that God adjusts to us. He becomes one of us. It's God's accommodation to you and I. It's, it's, it's that we can't reach God, so God reaches down to us. It, it is that. It, it's like a parent with his child, that a, that a parent makes accommodations for their children. And all of you can understand that, because... Uh, Everybody in this room, either a parent or you've been a child. So you can understand that, that we make accommodations for our children. We do. It's how we set up our house. If you have a baby or a toddler in the house, what do you do? You put up gates everywhere you don't want them to go, right? So you incarcerate your children is what you do. Yeah, yeah. You keep them out of certain rooms and out of the stairs and all those kinds of things. And, and so you accommodate your own home, even though you get up in the middle of the night and you forget that the child gate is there and you take it down, right? Yes. Yeah. That, that, but we make those accommodations. We make accommodations in scheduling. We make accommodations in the food that we prepare for our children. Oh, the kind of car that we drive. Yeah. If you have a child, you're going to trade in the Porsche for the minivan. Exactly right. Yeah. But you say, I can support a minivan just like I support a Porsche. And maybe you can. But you make accommodations for those things. Reba and I, oh, our kids are older and they're out of, out of the house now. And I want to tell you, we still make accommodations for them. We do. Because we're, we, well, I, we, are, we see ourselves as loving parents. Yeah. Yesterday morning, Reba and I get up really early on Saturday morning. We jump in the car. We drive two and a half hours 
through Atlanta traffic to the other side of Atlanta. And I tell you, if there's ever been the dirt road of sanctification, it's I-85 through Atlanta. It really is, right? It brings out the very best and the very worst in all of our lives. Yes. And you think I timed it just right, and all of a sudden it's a parking lot. Where is everybody going? I don't know, you know? And so we get up and we go, and we go early. We drive two and a half hours to go see our seven-year-old granddaughter play a 40-minute soccer match. Yes. Isn't that great? Some of you think when your kids are gone from home, all those sports things are over. No, they just transition into two and a half hour drives, okay? Understand that. It's what they transition to, yeah. And then we spend some time with them at their house, of course, absolutely, and enjoy and love every single moment of that. But even we accommodate for our granddaughters. Likewise, and I thought this, likewise, oh, how wonderful that God accommodates us. Yes, that he works within our limitations. He works within the parameters of our life. He does that by coming as Jesus wrapped in flesh. He does. It's like a parent getting on the floor with a child and playing with him. He speaks to us in a way that we can understand. He does. He relates to us in a way that we can grasp. That's exactly what God does. God does that through us, through his son, Jesus. That's the encouragement incarnation. That's it. Yes. Emma and I, my seven-year-old granddaughter, I love her. She's like wild. She's bouncing off the wall. You know, she's seven and she's just wild. And, and when Papa and Grams come, it's like crazy time, you know, kind of deal. And so uh, she plays with Grams with dolls for a while. Whew, thank goodness I get to watch football, you know, and do manly stuff. So, and, and listen, but real men play with dolls too. Understand that. We can talk about that later, right? And, and so uh, Reva does the doll thing, and then she comes down and she says, Papa, it's time for us to wrestle. You know, we got to get in there. And I do this thing with her called the claw. And I know it's weird, it's cheesy, it is, but you know, that's Emma and I, that's our thing, and so don't worry. So we get on the floor and we start wrestling around. And so Emma can scream at, at pitches that are p- ear piercing. It's unbelievable how high these screams are. And when Papa gets the claw, especially like in the belly region, and she's, you know, she's. She's laughing, and she lets out this squeal. All of a sudden, my 36-year-old son comes in the door, and he said, would you children please hold down the noise because you're going to wake the baby up, you know? And he speaks to me, and I'm 60, and she's 7 as if we're the same age. (laughs) Grandparents, I'm telling you, grandparenting makes you sort of revert back to that. Yes. But you know what? I'm going to accommodate her however I can because that's my heart and I love her greatly and I would give my life for her in a very moment. It's very much what the incarnation is to you and I that God accommodates us by wrapping his son in flesh and sending him to you and I to simply disclose everything about his heart and his love for us. But then there's verse 5. This is the rub for us in humanity. It says the light shines into darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's conflict. It's conflict created by you and I, but yet responded to by the Creator. That Jesus doesn't just come... Listen, Jesus doesn't just bust into this world because He needs friends. Understand that. 
if he needed friends, he would just simply uh, start up a Facebook page kind of deal. You know, could you imagine how many friends Jesus would have on Facebook? It would be crazy, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yes. And and if you you know you would never want to defriend him. That's for sure. Uh, th- that that's probably not going to happen. But he doesn't do that. He comes he comes to this world for a very specific purpose, and the purpose is that because you and I are broken, we're broken. We need to be rescued. And there's only one way for that rescue to take place in our life, and that is the incarnation. God wrapped in flesh. That's the heart of the Father revealed through the Son. Verse 6 says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And, and I, I pause for a moment before I continue reading. Because the thing that hit me most, most profound about these two verses, 6, 7, and 8, is the next statement. For he says this, John says this about John the Baptist, so get our Johns correct here, that he was not the light. He makes out the statement. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. God accommodates us because of our condition, but it's God's response. It's our condition and God's response. In the middle of this of prescriptive exegesis about the, the incarnation, it's as if John takes this moment, he stops in the middle of talking about this incarnation and about who Jesus is, the revealing of the Father. And he said, let me throw in this snippet about John the Baptist for a moment. That he's the one that proclaims Christ. He's the one that stands up and says, this is Jesus. I'm not even unworthy to to unlatch his sandals. But yet he's also the John. John the Baptist is also the John that while he sits in prison, in Herod's prison, what does he do? He begins to doubt if Jesus truly is the son of God. Why? Because Jesus doesn't come and bust him out of jail. I love this because it brings the humanity into all of this so you and I can connect with all this. And eventually he does lose his life for the greater glory of Christ. So it's so human. But yet John, the apostle, John, the writer of our book today, makes this powerful statement. He, John the Baptist, was not the light. No, it's not. Who is John the Baptist? He's this fallible, um, he's this fallible, sinful, doubting human being is who he is. Yes, and for greater clarity of who God is, I have to have some clarity of who I am. It's important that I know who I am, that I'm not the light. I am not the light. Yes, for some of you, maybe that's a shock, but I am not the light. I'm this fallible, sinful, imperfect individual bent towards sin within my life. That is actually, and anything that falls short of that understanding of who I am diminishes the work of the cross within my life and also becomes very fertile ground for me to become prideful and arrogant unless I see myself as who I really am. I have to know that about me. Yes, that I am not the light. Whew, and I don't want to be. Man, that is a, a heavy load. I don't want to be the light. No. In fact, Ephesians 2 and 1 describes this perfectly. I think it says, this is who we are. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, no, no, I, I'm, I'm the way I am because of my environmental influences. And I believe that those things have some effect on us. I'm not doubting that at all. But it says this, that I am who I am. I am a child of wrath because of my nature. It's the seed of sin that's in my life, like the rest of mankind, he said. But then look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. What does God do? God sees the gap of eternity in my life. And he says, I'm going to feel this, not because I have to feel it, because I'm God. I'm going to feel it because I love my creation. And he wraps his son Jesus in flesh, and he sends it. To the, sends him to the earth to fill the gap of eternity within our lives. It's not that, and I've heard people say this sometimes, that Jesus brought light into our darkness. And if you say it that way, then I think that what you do, you take away some of the value of this statement. It's not that Jesus brought light into our darkness. Jesus is the light in our darkness. We need to understand that. That's why it calls him here in this statement that we just read. He is the true light. He is not just a light. He is not just a moment of brightness in a very dark and bleak world, but he is the light in this world of darkness that you and I lives in because he accommodates us. It's the way God loves us. And when we look at that, oh, I've, and, and we lay that over the redemption story, it, it, it changes the way we see things. Look at verse 10. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So our response to the coming of Christ, the incarnate Christ wrapped in flesh, that, that he's not a gift given by God, as somehow God is obligated to do something for you and I. It's not that at all, but he's a gift given through God, and John establishes that by the language that he uses because he comes from the very heart of the Father, a reflection of God's character and nature. He's a reflection of the life and the very heart of the Father. Yes, so how do we respond to the heart of the Father? Some do and some don't. Some respond and some don't. So why do some believe and others don't? Mark, that's personal. You can't talk about things like that. You can't talk about why some people choose Jesus and some people don't. That is absolutely personal. Can I tell you, we should never shy away from the hard questions. Because if we're not asking the hard questions, then we're not digging deeper. And if we're not digging deeper, then we're not growing. And so we have to ask the hard questions. Why do some people believe and some people don't? Well, John, he addresses how we receive. Is what he does. Look at verse 12. He says this, but to all who did receive him, and he uses the word receive, and it's important, who believed in his name, he gave the right, I underline those two words, the right, to become children of God. And if you just take verse 12, oh, this is about human initiative. Yeah, because Mark, he gave us the right. It says it right there, you know, that he gave us the right. So this is about human initiative. But that word is misleading for you and I. Because it doesn't mean a legal claim, 
But what it means is this power and authority. The very power, the very power that is placed in our lives this morning. Understand that. To choose Christ. To simply, to that power to make a decision for Him. Where did that power come from? It comes from God. It does. Where does the power come from that draws us to Him? It comes from God. As if it's somehow it's our initiative. No, absolutely not. It's not that at all. The power that produces divine life within us, it's a gift from God. It's God. But then look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if we look at verse 12 only, oh, this is about human initiative. This is about what I do, that I make this choice. And then if we look at verse 13 alone, it's about divine initiative. I'm confused. I'm confused here. So which one is it? Human initiative or divine initiative? Which one is it? And John uses physical birth. He does. That the blood and the will of the father and mother produce the child. In spiritual birth, there's no human effort. Now, this is what you have to grasp this morning. It's Christ's blood and the father's will. He establishes that. This birth owes nothing to human domain or or effort. What I realize, this is where the statement comes from. That you and I, when it comes to this relationship with God, we bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing to the table. But Mark, I made the decision. But it was simply the power of God in you that gave you the power to make the decision. Understand that. But I got up and I walked down the aisle and I shook the pastor's hand in front of the church. What was it that drew you to God? What was it that caused you to desire to do that? It was the power of God within your life. Understand that. We bring nothing to the table. This is all a gift of God. Because anything outside of that makes it a work of ours. It it, it creates this ground in our lives for some kind of arrogance and pride. No, becoming his children means simply sharing in his divine life without ceasing to be his creatures. It's not some intellectual ascent. No, no. It's this relationship based upon what he has done, not what we have done. And I respond by trust, and I respond by believing, and I respond by obeying. Because listen, if I realize that it's what Christ has done in my life, boy, I'm going to trust Him a lot more because I don't trust, always trust my judgment. Because why? Because I have the three and a half inch view of life. John starts out by establishing this value of God, that He is vast and He is great, that He has coexisted throughout all eternity. So what does that mean? He's in my past, He's in my present, He's in my future simultaneously, so I can trust Him. I can trust him. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, that the very creation that he spoke into existence, he's born into that creative order. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth, the character of God, full of grace and truth. That John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So the last thought is this, that from his fullness we have all received grace and truth. And that grace, I begin to think about what is that? You know, 
It, it's, we, we talk about, we throw that word around so much. What is that grace? It's this promise-keeping, gracious love of God. And what is that truth? It's God's faithful reliability. And what that, what that refers to is this. It's the reality for you and I that forgiveness has come. That forgiveness has come. God wrapped in flesh, accommodating us in our weaknesses and in our sin, in our rebellion, in our uncertainty, that he is here. He's here. Verse 17, and I end with these, I have to go to 18, that's the plan. So I, I finished for that, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known that and this reference to Moses, I begin to think about this a lot. And the thing is that Jesus doesn't come with more rules for you and I. Realize that. He doesn't come with more rules. It's not like he shows up and says, man, I gave you 10 and you really stink at keeping 10, so here's 20 more. You know, kind of deal. And let's see how that works out for your life. You know? Let's see how that plays out. No. Here's what Jesus does. He comes with truth and grace. He comes with truth and grace. That truth being the fulfillment of the law that he is fulfilling what you and I could never fulfill. He's becoming what you and I could never become. He's bridging the gap between us and God. He, he is everything we would never be because he never lies and he doesn't cheat and he doesn't steal. He's perfect and we are not. Thus that fulfillment that we could never fulfill, he fulfills for us. And then he says not only is he truth, but he is grace and forgiveness. And, and I read this text about Moses, it says that the law was given through Moses, that Moses is, an, is a messenger of the law, but grace and truth came through Jesus. That Jesus is not a messenger of grace and truth. Jesus is the source of grace and truth. He's the source of grace and truth. No way would I ever pretend that I have wrapped my mind around all the aspects of the incarnation because it's far beyond human understanding. That God pushes back impossibility for you and I. I think what's most difficult for me to understand is that God would push back impossibility for me. I think that's the most difficult thing to understand. Because he knows me. He knows me. He's there every moment because the vastness and the greatness of him. He's there every moment. Man, when I get it right, he's there. And when I get it wrong, he's there. He knows me. Yet he pushes back impossibility. Hey, it's football season. And I know some of you lack a little sleep last night because you stayed up late watching your team, you know. Some of you were joyful because your team won. Some of you were in mourning today because they didn't win, you know, kind of thing, right? Some of you prayed for your team last night, and I'm not sure exactly how that works. Don't ask me theologically, okay? I'm not really sure, right?
But if you go to a football game, and I thought about this, and you get a drink before you go into the game, in a, and of course it's Coke, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so you, you, get a, you get a drink, and you're standing there in line. Guess who's not standing in line with you? Guess who's not there in line with you? The quarterback. Yeah. Wouldn't that freak you out if you're standing in line for a Coke and you look around the quarterback standing behind you waiting in line for his, right? Before the game. No, that's not it. Where, where is he? he? He's in the locker room. The locker room, it's a place of privilege. If you don't think it's a place of privilege, you just go to any college football stadium during a football game and you try to walk into their locker room. You're going to find it's really a great, it's a, it's a really a place of privilege. And then you're going to find yourself in a place of privilege, probably, right? True. He stays in there because he has to get his mind right before the game. And in order to do that, he has to be free from fans. Because what would fans want to do? They'd want his autograph. They'd want to talk to him. They'd want to give him some pointers for the game. All those kinds of things. But he stays in there because he's free from fans. Because he's the quarterback. I mean, the, the game really rises and falls truly in that position. How mind-blowing. How awesome. That God puts on flesh. That he accommodates us. That he steps out of his place of privilege. And he chooses to live among us. Knowing all along who we are. Because with God in his vastness and greatness, our past and our present never surprises him. The whole point of him coming in grace and truth instead of coming in law and rules is because he knows that you and I are incapable of keeping all of the law. So he came in forgiveness. And forgiveness is here. It is here. So for a moment of reflection, would you bow your heads for a moment?